Good to see everybody here today at the Mount Pleasant campus. Hi to everyone down in St. John's and Alma and those of you who are worshiping with us online. Today is a communion Sunday, so if you're online with us, go ahead and pull out some juice and crackers, and we'll celebrate that at the end of the sermon today. It was many, many years ago when God got a hold of me, when the elders of the church said, it's time for you to go to seminary. I didn't even know what seminary was when I said yes. But at 30 years old, I took my wife and we put our feet on the campus to begin our study. Now, I had a goal. My goal was that over the next three years, I'll learn everything that I didn't learn for the first 30. But just a small goal. I was in classes with guys who had grown up in sub-kindergarten Christians. You know, they had been Christians for 25, 30 years. And so I had a lot of catching up to do. That was my plan. Now, to that extent, Jesus and I share something. I'm hoping over time we share a lot more. But he was 30 years old. And he had a plan. His was a little different than mine. His was to conquer the world, to show the world who he is, to establish a kingdom, to defeat Satan, to seek and to save the lost. That was his plan. He already had all the information. He knew what he was going to do. And over these weeks coming and from last week, we're looking at 11 different events in the life of Christ that help us understand what a radical change maker he is. He turned the world upside down with his very presence. And we want to learn more about him. So last week we started with our understanding of his very humble, quiet beginning as he came in to be baptized by John. And then when that baptism ends, if I had been planning, and aren't we glad that's not the case, if I had been planning it, and I had been Jesus, and I had been baptized, I probably would have said, okay, that's it. I'm here. I am the Savior of the world. Everyone here, repent, and you'll be saved. And we would have seen this massive thing take place, and then the world would have been fine, and we wouldn't have had to go through all we've had to go through. But that's just not the way it happened, is it? Because there's this twist, and, and it's an unusual, unexpected twist until you really grasp the, the fullness of the Scripture that God has revealed to us. And that twist comes when the Bible says that he led him, the Holy Spirit, Matthew 4.1, the Holy Spirit was led by the Spirit, Jesus was, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What? Why would he do that? Why couldn't it have been done a different way? What's so important that this event had to take place over the next 40 days? Well, let's look at it for a minute. There is a war that continues to this day. It's a war between the kingdom of light, that's the kingdom of our God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of darkness, which is run and ruled by Satan. And the Spirit of God came upon Jesus 
and led him into this wilderness setting in order to begin this upside-down ministry that he was going to initiate. And to do that, he had to make some changes. He had to pay some prices. He had to identify with you and me. He identified with us in the baptism because he knew that we were sinners. And now he's going into the wilderness and he's going to identify us with three principles that run Satan's kingdom. Provision, power, and pride. See, that was the fall of mankind from the very beginning. So these two kingdoms are going to collide in the wilderness even as they had a collision on course in the Garden of Eden. Satan had wanted to be like God, and God kicked him out of heaven, and a third of the angels made a choice to follow him. And so that's that baseline of the kingdom of darkness, and he was sent here, and he rules here, but under the authority of our God. And so this battle had to take place because there is no victory without a contest. There has to be a contest to have a victory. Now, they're not equally ultimate. It's not that Satan is equal to Jesus Christ. In no way is he. He is a created being. Jesus is the everlasting, eternal God. But this battle still had to take place. So for 40 days, he was in fasting. Now, I did a little research to understand what happens to the human body during that period of time. Well, the first two days, you really get hungry because you're not used to not eating. But then in days three to seven, the fat starts burning. Some of us will do better in that setting than others. <laughs> but from eight to 15, in that two-week period, what's going to happen is mental clarity is actually going to come. And you're going to think more clearly than you have before. And then from the 16th day until whatever day you choose to end, in his case, the 40th, there is a balance that comes to the body. And it's a physical and a spiritual balance. Now, you're hungry. You haven't eaten. Your body is weak. But you are in a state of mind that is, is capable of amazing things. And that was the position that Christ found himself in when this engagement took place. Satan's going to attack. He's going to attack in provision, pride, and power. Now here's the first one. The temptation of provision. Matthew 4, 3. Satan says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Why do you do that? Well, he's testing whether or not Christ really is depending upon the Father for all of his provision. This is the same way Satan began in the Garden of Eden. When he went to Eve, he said, Has God said, you know, is it true? I want to challenge you. Did he provide everything you need, or didn't he say there's a tree that you can't eat from? So he didn't give you full provision. I'm challenging God about what he can provide. That's what he did for Eve and for Adam. 
And they made a choice to agree with him because they did not believe that God could supply everything they needed. And it's a temptation, isn't it? How many of you right now, don't raise your hands because I don't want you, you can plead the Fifth Amendment. How many of you already know how much the Powerball is worth on Monday? <laughs> how many of you are hoping you'll win it? You know, I'm not going to play it. But I've already told God what I'd do if he happened to give me a ticket or something like that. And I could help him out. You know, there's a, it's $403 million cash prize. I don't know how I know that, but. <laughs> and so don't you go through your mind, what would I do with that? You know, well, let's see, we'd, we'd pay this off and this off. And, and wow, we'd have all that left over. Oh, I have to tithe. <laughs> so where would I tithe that? You know, community church, yeah, <laughs> uh, of course, yes. Um, but then I still got all this left over. What I want to do with it? Well. I'll find ways to help God. You know, God says to me, I don't need your help. <laughs> He's never needed help. He uses us for his own glory. And he uses you and me to help other people. But God always supplies everything we need through his riches in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. I have never begged bread. I have never gone hungry. In all of my years following Christ, wherever the need, the true need was, God met that need. Seldom was it met in the fashion that I would choose to meet it. But it was always met. Because my provision comes from Him. He knows best. He knows everything about you. There are no secrets from God. He knows your heart. He knows your soul. He knows your spirit. He knows what you need, so he will provide it. But Satan knows that, and that's why the kingdom of darkness is built on lies. That, look, you win that Powerball, I assure you, you're going to be a better person. Statistically, that's not true. Just go back and see what's happened to most of the people who've won these large financial gains. God only gives a few people both the money and the ability to use it properly. That's why he never gave it to me. <laughs> because he, he knows deep down inside I love him and I trust him, but he's not going to put me in a setting where I'm tempted or tested. God doesn't tempt us. We're not tempted of God. But Satan turns to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, talk to these stones down here. Just turn them into bread. Well, let me clarify one thing. There are four ways to use the word if in the biblical Greek language. If and it's true, if and it's not true, if it might be true, and if I wish it were true. Those are the four. Satan is using the class one definition of if. If you're the son of God, and I know it's true. How does he know it's true? Well, all he had to do is be right there at the baptism, and he would have known then, because the father speaks from heaven, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. But it wasn't just that. Satan was there when Christ was born. 
Satan was trying to get to him then through Herod. Satan has been on his case from the very beginning. So yes, he knew who he was. So when he stands there and says to him, I know you can do this. You can speak to that rock down there and make it bread and then you won't be hungry anymore. Then the provision will be made for you. But Jesus quotes back to him Deuteronomy 8.3 from the law. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now look at what's so neat in that statement that he's making. We're talking about needing to put something in our mouths and what we need comes from the mouth of God. God breathes into you life. And he continues to breathe that life into you as long as you are alive. And if you've become a follower of Jesus Christ, he has breathed into you his Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God now lives in you. And every word that he speaks sustains you. You don't need provision from anyone other than God. And God gave you gifts to work so you could provide. He gave you abilities and gifts because he wants you to be part of the vehicle of that provision. But everything you have, everything, he gave you. You don't have anything that he didn't give you. So Jesus just spins him off. You see, evil will always challenge your issue of how much is enough. When you think you need more, what you need is from the Lord. Jesus knew that. He knew that's where his provision came from. He knew this. He was not willing to let anybody fail in this thought. This was his thought. I'm not just going to win a contest with Satan. I'm going to have a conquest of Satan. So we don't have a contest with Satan because Christ has already had the conquest of Satan. He's already victorious over him. So if I am in Christ and Christ is in me, then I have victory over the evil one. And I need to claim that victory. But what gets in my way of claiming the victory? The second issue, the temptation of pride. That one's addressed in Matthew 4, 5 and 6. The evil one says this, The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He's actually quoting, Satan is quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. See, Satan knows the Word of God, knows it inside and out. He can quote it better than you and I can. But he's throwing this temptation of pride at Jesus. Now, I want you to picture this with me. He's probably on the porch, the temple porch of the tabernacle, and he's looking down, and sunset was long gone. Sunrise is beginning, and when the sun rises in the east, and the sunlight comes down upon the stones that are the foundation for the temple. They are beautiful. These stones just glow in a different way. 
And he would have seen that, and he would have seen the priests opening the gates, ready to receive all of the worshipers coming in with their sacrifices. And what Satan wanted him to do was he said, if you jump, you won't fall, you'll float down slowly because the angels will have you, and they will take you down, and you'll be the Messiah coming into the midst of all of the, the priests and all of the people, and they will see you. And you'll be able to show them who you are. What a statement of pride. But the Apostle Paul later writes that Jesus humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a man. Being found in fashion as a man, he was obedient even to the death of the cross. So it is the humility of Christ that overcomes the pride that Satan wants us to have. And he always wants us to have pride. He wants to manipulate the Messiah. Listen, don't play games of manipulation with God. Don't go there. Don't say, God, I'll do this if. Because he may very well let you. And then you've got a real challenge. It's better to say, God, whatever. <laughs> whatever you want to do with me, Lord, I'm ready. Just... Keep me humble because I know that nothing I have is mine and nothing that I'm capable of doing is out of my own strength because in my weakness, your strength is made perfect. That's the point behind it. Now, when you can reach that level on a day-to-day -day basis, you really have conquered Satan in that area of pride. You have to work hard not to be pride-filled. Next Sunday, 12th February, is the Super Bowl. For those of you who are lost in a different world, that's a football game. Okay, that's real football. That's American football. <laughs> and in that football game, you have two teams that are playing. And oddly enough, it's been quite a while, these are really the best two teams for the previous year. They won more than anyone else. They lost fewer than anyone else. And here they are coming together. Okay, it's the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. And each of those has a key person on them, the ones that should be filled with pride, Jalen Hurts, the quarterback for Philadelphia, and Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for Kansas City. So they, they should just be filled with pride. Well, there was an interview by CBS of both of these men because they're going to play them as much as they can to, to do whatever they can do with them. And Jalen Hurts said this, I have matured and realized that God is everything, and he is worthy of praise. You have to put him at the center of everything you do, and that's what I believe. All my spiritual wisdom, all my wisdom as a whole comes from him in some way, shape, or form, whether it was passed down by my father, my mother, or my grandmother. Wow, that makes you want to root for him, doesn't it? There he is. He's a Christian. You know, Christians should win right? So you want him to win. But here's the problem. His name is Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes says, before every game, I walk the field. And I just do a prayer at the goalposts, and I thank God for those opportunities. I thank God for just letting me on a stage where I can glorify him. And I feel like the biggest thing that I pray for is that whatever happens, win or lose, success or failure, that I'm glorifying him and doing everything the right way that he wants me to. <laughs> now I have a dilemma. I want him to have a tie. 
<laughs> These two young men, both in their 20s, Mahomes making, get ready for this, $45 million a year. I calculated. That's $44,000 a minute that he plays the game. You know, I, just a couple of minutes, I'd be fine. <laughs> but you see, that's, that's pride, isn't it? These young men don't have pride because they know that their gifts have come, in, have come from God. That he's placed them in a position to use their fame and their fortune for his glory. And that's what it's all about. So this issue of pride doesn't work with Christ at all. Christ tells them, no, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. So now Christ has had victory over pride. He's had victory over possessions. He's only left with one to deal with to upset everything that happened in the garden. Because wasn't it for pride that both Adam and Eve decided they should be like God? That was the promise of Satan. If you eat of this, you'll be like God. Well, that's what we all want to be, isn't it? Want to be just like God. No. But they fell for that. They made that choice. We are not like him. We will never be like him. We are being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And we can have that character of Christ in us as we continue to mature. And someday, when we're in his presence... We will see him for who he is, and we'll love him. But we have this issue of power, the temptation of power. People love power. Why? Because power is the purpose of darkness. Whoever has the most power can control the money, can control the armies, can control the world. Whoever has power, Satan says, he has all the power on this earth. Jesus says, no, you don't. I have the power. The devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he says, if you will bow down and worship me. That's his end goal, that he becomes the one who is worshipped, not the one that we should worship. That's what it's all about. But Jesus knows that he has to obey the Father to gain the kingdom. He's being told, look, you're entitled. Satan says, you're entitled to this. And if we ever lived in a world that feels entitlement is important, we live in it now. So yeah, you're entitled to this. You're entitled to this, Jesus. Look, look at all the worlds that are out there. Look at Jerusalem. Look at the beauty. I can give this to you. And Jesus said, I didn't come with an issue of entitlement as the son of God. I came to win this kingdom back for God. And to do that, I have only one thing I need to do. I need to undo what Adam did. Adam, through the disobedience of one man, ushered sin and death into the world. Jesus, the one God-man, comes 
And he takes that sin out of the world by paying the ultimate price for it. By dying on the cross that his father would be appeased and the wrath wouldn't come against us anymore. So he came to undo what Adam didn't do. But he came to do what Adam couldn't do. He chose not to do, and that is obey. Because Christ was perfectly obedient throughout his entire life. He never, ever sinned. And yet, he became sin for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He became sin for you and for me. So when he was on that cross, all of our sin was upon him. And it was so overwhelming that he actually became sin. And he paid the price. So he undid what Adam couldn't do, and he did what Adam didn't do. And to achieve that, he had to rebuke Satan. And in 4.10 of Matthew, he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that's the key. Here's why it's an upside-down thinking. Members of a kingdom fight for that kingdom and die for that kingdom in order to keep the, keep the king in place and keep the kingdom running. But Jesus comes and says, no, as the king, I'm going to die to establish the kingdom. It's upside down. It's reversed. It's radical. And it's this Christ who now sends Satan away and says, depart from me. You know, get out of here. I have the conquest of you now. We will have a few more battles over the next three years. But ultimately, I will crush your head as was promised in the Garden of Eden. And I will take you out. He established the ground rules of victory. If you are empowered by the Father with salvation, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are ministered to by the angels as was Christ when he left the wilderness, then you are in him and you have the victory that belongs only to you and to me. He conquered Satan. He faced temptation without sin. From the reality and the beauty of the garden came death. From the devastation and wickedness and ugliness of the wilderness came life. So we have life in him, the Messiah, who did not follow Satan's lead in possessions or pride or power. The question today is, is he your Messiah? Is he your Jesus? I hope he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. You set us free, Lord, when we are in Christ. So I pray you would come today and you would attack each one of us in those areas, one or more of them, where we are falling short, that you would forgive us and that you would show us the way, the way of truth, the way of the kingdom of the light. Help us, Lord, to be overcomers in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to remember that sacrifice that Christ made. When he gathered the disciples together that evening, he was instructing them 
about something new that was about to take place, and that was the switch from all the Old Testament sacrifices into the perfect sacrifice of himself. And that's why he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Let us eat together. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which also ushered in a new command and a new movement. But this is our Christ who died for us. Let us remember him and drink together. Lord, we praise your name. It is the only name under heaven that we have been given for the salvation of mankind. Help us this week, Lord, as we move through the week to rejoice in you, to depend upon you, to follow you, and to worship you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.